0: Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Dr. Julie Sosa today. But first, we'd like to check in on current or hot topics in health and healthcare. It's a brand new year, Harlan. Happy New Year to you and everybody out there. What do you have for us?
1: Oh, happy New Year, Howie. And uh, yeah, well, I'm really excited to hear Julie Ann's. That'd be terrific. But First, I thought I would start off just briefly to say like, hey, have you noticed a lot of people have COVID now? Oh, my God. Yeah. real. <laughs> I mean, everybody I know. Everybody I know. And my mother. My, I mean, it's just like so many people have come down with this now. And uh, I was looking at the CDC stats. Positivity is up 12 percent. Emergency visits up 2.5 percent. That's not as bad. But hospitalizations are up 17 percent and deaths are up 10 percent. But I, I think it's important for us to take a you know, broader view of this. And I was looking back at where we stood a year ago and then two years ago. And when you look at that, you really see that, you know, take January 2022, we're now in January 2024, of course. You know, we, we, we were at a much higher level, you know, than, than we are now. I think the one thing to appreciate is that, you know, there's been a lot of progress. And so people are getting sick. Uh, my only concern is when I'm hearing from people, is that, you know, they're feeling sicker than people who've been infected maybe over the last year. You know, I mean, it's sort of like there was a time when it was kind of harsh. And then we've been through a period where people have gotten sick, but hasn't been very bad at all. And I think we're now in a period where maybe it's somewhat intermediate. Some people are getting very sick and some are being hospitalized. I mean, we had our own place. We've got people in the hospital. And the vaccination rate nationally is like, what, 18 percent? It's a very low number. That's a problem that people got complacent, I think, feeling that this wasn't a big deal. I say that I think that the you know the drift in the types of, of SARS-CoV-2, you know, the cause of COVID, are now changing towards something a little harsher, a little more significant. We'll have to keep an eye on it. But we're still, you know, I'm still pretty strong telling people that they should be vaccinated. I think and, so. and I
0: will say for our listeners, I did get vaccinated and I made a decision to go for Novavax. I got it about three weeks ago. Happy about that. I had, you know, no significant side effects from that. And I would urge people, if anybody's afraid of the reactogenicity from, you know, the the side effects from the mRNA vaccines, Novavax is out there. It's one more option available.
1: That's great. So I just want to quickly get into something because I know we actually want to have a a longer conversation with Julian. So it's a friend of ours, chief of surgery. You said you're going to do the whole intro, but, but it'll be a great conversation. Just wanted to say, so how you exercise every day, don't you? I do. Yeah. Yes. And what if I could give you a pill that could give you the same benefit? Would you still exercise?
0: Probably. I probably would. Yeah. I don't. Yes, I don't think would. I would take a pill.
1: So people are talking about whether or not we can start giving pills to people that that substitute for exercise. And, and I was reading this article in the Guardian that was saying uh, uh, in a hospital in northern Norway, there's an experiment taking place. And I looked it up on clinicaltrials.gov. This trial is called ExPlas exercised plasma where the clinical trial involves taking blood plasma. So that's basically taking blood from folks and processing it and just taking the plasma part of it. That, that's not the red blood cells, but the plasma part, the liquid and all the stuff that's in it from young and healthy adults who exercise on a regular basis and injecting it into people aged 50 to 75 in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. And to test whether or not actually they they can tolerate it as a start, it really is about safety, and then some efficacy of this transfusion from exercise-trained donors. And we've been hearing about this before. I mean, I don't know if you ever watched that show Silicon Valley. You know, it's stuff where they oh, would, yeah. like, take these rich Silicon Valley people, and they would have young, healthy folks, and, and take some of their blood, and think that they were they were getting better off. But you know, this is this is actually a trial that's testing this strategy. And I just wanted to share for you at the beginning of the year, because I just thought it was wild.
0: That is wild. And, uh, you know, look, anything that can make people healthier, I'm happy to see tested, but I think the benefits of exercise go way, way beyond the actual physiological. Oh, we're going to find
1: out what it is, Howie. There's something on the biological basis and then you'll be able to take a pill every day and it'll be just like you've been training. But you know?
0: but what I'm saying is I enjoy the, the time that I have, to do exercise it's a it's a headspace thing as well as a physiologic thing for me
1: and what if this pill could do the headspace thing
0: for you and then now you had 40 and i would more. want the headspace on top of the headspace
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's a it's yeah. a brave new world how it is it world. is and pretty will be doing soma and all sorts of other stuff that uh aldous hexley was telling us about so many years ago but we'll see what happens uh with this, but I thought it was a very interesting trial.
0: So anyway, that was my little tidbit for the day. And um, yeah, let's get on to our interview. Dr. Julianne Sosa is the chair of the UCSF Department of Surgery, where she is also a practicing endocrine surgeon and the Leon Goldman Distinguished Professor of Surgery. Prior to joining UCSF, Dr. Sosa was chief of endocrine surgery at Duke University. And prior to that, was at Yale University where we first met her when she was a practicing surgeon here. Dr. Sosa's research focuses on treating and understanding advanced thyroid cancer, and she has also published extensively on health system improvement. In addition to serving on the editorial boards of seven medical journals, she is the elected Editor-in-Chief of the World Journal of Surgery and held previous positions as Deputy Editor of JAMA Surgery and Associate Editor of the Journal of Surgical Research. She also serves on the boards of the Society of Surgical Oncology, International Thyroid Oncology Group, Association for Academic Surgery Foundation, and is treasurer of the American Thyroid Association. She holds a bachelor's degree from Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and a master's degree from Oxford University. She got her MD degree from Johns Hopkins and then completed a fellowship in clinical research through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as a clinical scholar. So first, I just want to welcome you to the podcast. It is an absolute joy to have you here. And in doing the research for today's segment, and you and I have known each other for decades at this point, but I learned so much about you. And I learned that you were not going to go be a physician when you were at Princeton. You had a very different career path in mind at that point. Do you want to just give us an idea of how that started and how you eventually did pivot to medicine?
2: Yeah, so, you know, life is strange. And um, I think if a line is the shortest distance between two points, I've certainly never lived the life of a line. Um, and uh, when I graduated from Princeton, I was probably going to be a labor economist. And uh, I took two years and uh, wrote a book about the labor market for academic PhDs in the arts and sciences, meaning what would the labor market be for someone of my phenotype? And what I found out from my own research was I wasn't gonna have a job. I was probably gonna be unemployed, maybe driving a taxi cab as a PhD in economics. And so I said to my parents, I said, mom and dad, I gotta do something different here. And my dad is a physician, he's actually a cardiologist. And he said, well, why don't you be a doctor? You'll always have a job. And that is sort of how I wound up going into uh, into
1: medicine. We ask our uh, uh, our student who works with us in his deal, you know, to help prepare materials, and she did as Howie said, put together like a remarkable set of materials about you. It's so interesting. But just to build on this, we, we always ask her to give us a few questions that she would like to ask. So I'm going to start the year with Ines's uh, question, and she says. You're someone who had this kind of idea that you went later. What she wants to know, what is it that you're thinking in terms of advice that you give people to stay open to different career paths? So a lot of people in, in her position, she's just finishing up her undergraduate career, feeling a lot of pressure to commit. And, you know, when you're sitting down with her, you, you're such an excellent mentor. You know, how do you a- actually work with people so that you can understand what's in their best interest and give them the freedom to be able to make the choices that they want to make?
2: Based on my own life experience, I think I spent much of my life living other people's lives. And uh, I think many of us, maybe most of us do that, whether it's for our parents, whether it's for our teachers, our counselors, as you say, for our mentors, for our chair. And um, uh, the problem is life is exquisitely short. And... It is absolutely essential to start your path with what's inside of you, your own truth. And I think I didn't do that for a very long time for very good reasons. And uh, what wound up happening is it took me a lot longer to get where I wanted to be, where um, I had joy in my life, and whether it was when I went to medical school, because my dad was a cardiologist, I was like, oh, I'm going to be an internist. And I put off doing my surgical experience until September of my fourth year. And uh, I spent like three days on the GI gold service. And I was like, this is it, actually, I, I need to become a surgeon. And You know, I was not one of those people who wanted to be a surgeon in utero. And uh, the reason I went into surgery, for better or worse, was for me being in the operating room was like being on a roller coaster. Now I know some people hate roller coasters. I love roller coasters. But the feeling I had being in the operating room was unparalleled by any, in fact, all uh, medical school experiences I had had. And so, again, I had to pivot. And I think the important thing learning from this experience is having an open mind more proximally in your life. If you're open to new experiences, to new people, I think you may be caught off guard. And if you have an open mind, you'll be able to advantage uh, those. And I think eventually I got to where I needed to be, but I, I can't say I'm an efficient a person who's lived my life officially.
1: There was what I felt to be a very important piece that came out recently uh, in September that talked about sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape by colleagues in the surgical workforce in the UK. And I've been surprised that nationally this didn't get the attention or outcry or, or statements or comments or initiatives that I thought it should have. In this report, which looked at People who were surveyed uh, in the UK surgical workforce said 63% of women reported being the target of sexual harassment versus about a quarter of men. Uh, Just say it's not zero in men. But even more importantly, or just as importantly, 30% of women had been sexually assaulted versus 7% of men in the UK surgical workforce. I don't know. I thought like the whole profession should have frozen stopped with this and said, this can't happen. And yet, you know, this is, it's not just that it happens, it's common. And I just don't, you as a leader, both locally and nationally, you know, what can we do to change the culture of, and it's not just surgery, by the way, I mean, surgery is where this focus is, but it's, I believe it's still endemic throughout our profession. And what do we do about this?
2: Yeah. So thank you for this question. And I, I I, don't think surgery is unique. It is something I will tell you has truth for me in terms of my own career. Nary a day goes by when I don't feel like I am the object of, at the very least, like a microaggression. I will say, sadly, as I've become more senior, I actually think the issues have become worse. And I'm not sure why that is. I I think in part it's because I'm a little wiser, I'm a little less naive, and I see things for what they are rather than when I was younger and sort of dismissed it as, what was that? I didn't understand that. Uh, And I think the other reason perhaps I'm more aware is that um, the stakes have gone up, right? As you become more senior and people, I think, start to feel perhaps more vulnerable and more competitive. And I will say that also in my personal life, you know, we all strive to be great mentors, but the fact of the matter is there are many more bad mentors in the world than good mentors and among the worst forms of bad mentorship are the mentors who mentor until the mentee becomes successful whether it's a man or a woman and then you become vulnerable and then rather than supporting you push down i would say that data from the uk similar data exists actually in the united states And um, some of the best data uh, from the United States are data looking at trainees, where uh, women, where members, for instance, of the LGBTQ community, um, and other minoritized uh, groups of our community experience more bullying, more harassment, almost certainly as a result, more attrition, and more feelings of suicide, suicidality. And so it's an international problem. I think it's bigger than surgery. I feel it personally um, and professionally. So what to do about it? So I think uh, the the first thing is to to talk about it. Second thing is to speak up and speak out. When these events happen, and they happen, I will tell you daily, it is either in real time or after the event to serve as a spokesperson, as an ally, to say what happened here, why did that happen, and to establish parameters that this is not part of our culture, it is not part of our values and it will not be tolerated. I think though that takes a lot of courage, right? And I'll be honest with you, I didn't have that courage when I was younger. And I think the only reason in the world to have power is to use power to empower those who have been disempowered, correct? I mean, at least that's what I feel. Why have it if you're not gonna use it to help others? And so I think I see my role as a chair, as a member of the House of Surgery, as someone to speak about my own experiences and then to speak up and speak out locally, but also nationally and internationally. And I don't think you have to be a woman to do it. I don't think you have to be a member of a community that has been victimized, but rather allyship is so powerful, but it takes courage and it takes skills. And I'm still trying to acquire skills each and every day. I think it's a lifelong process. And I would implore all of our colleagues in medicine to uh, gain the fund of knowledge, the skills and work on the courage to create a culture that is supportive and inclusive.
0: Doing the intro does no adequate justice to how much of an expert you are in thyroid and endocrine surgery. Um, I know this from reading both your scholarship, but also from knowing you personally and knowing what your practice is. As a radiologist, we see increasingly uh, nodules on the thyroid. Part of it is because we image better than we used to, but part of it is possibly that we're just seeing actually more. These patients are recommended for biopsies and follow-ups, it becomes very complicated. Can you give our audience a very simple view of what it means to have a thyroid workup? What do these nodules mean? Why do people worry or not worry?
2: Yeah, Um, so there are different estimates around what proportion of people have a thyroid nodule and the, the best estimates, I think, put it at around maybe 50%, half of Americans have um, a thyroid nodule. Now the good news is that an exquisitely small minority of these uh, nodules are clinically significant and represent uh, cancers. Um, Probably 95 to 98% of thyroid nodules are benign, not, not cancer. Having said that, though, you know, thyroid cancer uh, has increased in incidence. And I used to say there's a pandemic uh, of thyroid cancer because literally every developed and developing country in the world has experienced an increase in uh, thyroid cancer. In the United States, it was like 300 percent over uh, 30 years. And there were a lot of hypotheses as to what was going on? And I, I honestly, I think it's a, a mixed picture picture, and I think there are multiple explanations. But clearly one is the phenomenon of overdiagnosis and overdiagnosis resulting in overtreatment. And where does it come from? Well, you know, you fall down, you scratch your knee, you call up your primary care physician, They either send you for a blood test or for an imaging a study and what happens is we unmask these thyroid nodules and then the quandary is what do we do about them and until very recently we worked them up extensively uh, including with ultrasound and biopsy And then we realized that we were spending a lot of money and exposing people to a lot of anxiety around nodules that were clinically insignificant. So what we've done as a profession is to establish criteria and guidelines to avoid over-diagnosis and therefore over-treatment. How have we done it? You know, we've increased the size threshold for when we interrogate a thyroid nodules such that nodules that are less than one to one and a half centimeters in size and that do not have worrisome radiologic appearance, we let them be. We don't biopsy them. Well, some people may say, Well, aren't you going to miss some small cancers? And the fact of the matter is, I wouldn't say miss, but yeah. We are not going to diagnose some small thyroid cancers, but where we are going as a medical and surgical community is actually towards something called active surveillance. And I'm helping to write the next iteration of the American Thyroid Association guidelines around the management of differentiated thyroid cancer. And I expect active surveillance, meaning not doing upfront surgery for known or suspected tiny thyroid cancers, but rather watching them carefully. And if they do not grow, if they do not spread, if they do not metastasize, potentially letting them be. Now, is that the right thing for all patients? Absolutely not. And I think what it speaks to is the need for personalized treatment, meaning choosing the treatment that resonates best with patients within certain scientific parameters. But in this whole area, I'll be honest with you, there's a significant amount of evidential equipoise where I think patients have the opportunity to leverage their preferences, their values, their attitudes. And is thyroidology alone in this? No. Uh, For those of us who do cancer, we know similar trends are occurring in prostate cancer, breast cancer, and now in uh, thyroid cancer.
0: Can, can I pivot just a little bit because, you know, we are aware that women um, in medicine and in any profession um, don't, don't cease to be childbearing and childrearing, and they are primary caregivers in many cases. Um, And it has a real impact on career development and a host of other things. You recently wrote a piece about elder care and the similar sort of gender-based disequities that occur because of that same issue, basically, that women end up playing a disproportionate role in caring for parents and and other family members. Can you speak to what prompted you to write that piece and, and what you hope can change from writing that
2: yeah, so thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I would say I would love to be able to separate personal and professional identities and lives, but in in the end, they're integrated, right? And uh, the right and the left hands, they're like this. Um, and so I, I think professionally, uh, the most impactful work I've done has always been motivated by my own truth and my own life experience. And whether it's being a woman in American surgery, whether it's been an immigrant, whether it's being Latina, whether it's being a member of the LGBTQ community, all of these are my identities and color how I practice surgery, for the better or the worse. And I always like to say, you know, I treat all of these identities as superpowers, because they ultimately, I think, give you insight into the unique worlds of your patients, right, as well as your colleagues. And so um, the last year and a half of my life, personal now and professional, have been colored by um, the health experiences of my aging parents. And I have an 87 year old mother and a 93 year old father who in 2022 saw the bottom fall out during the pandemic, which I think happened to many elderly who were isolated. And quickly, I had to figure out how to take care of them financially, how to supervise their health care, basically how to save their lives. And I'm a physician. I'm the chair of the Department of Surgery at UCSF. And I'll tell you, I could not figure any of these things out when I started. And so I had to um, figure out how to bring together my personal and professional lives, and it's proven to be, at times, seemingly impossible. And as I shared my life experience with colleagues and friends, and fortunately I did that, I think many of us live in closed worlds where we feel shame or embarrassment of the personal challenges that we're experiencing. I always say, I need the strength of colleagues. I need the support of colleagues. And I certainly have needed those things over the last year and a half. But as I spoke about the challenges, what I found is that so many others are experiencing similar challenges. Now, we've been talking a lot, I think, fortunately, over the last several years about childbearing and child rearing, and I think we need to spend more time talking about these things. But elder care is oft neglected, and I think it's like the elderly in our culture are oft neglected, um, which is very different from many other cultures around the world. And what I realized is that in particular, women colleagues have been caught in this sandwich where they focus in the early part of their careers on taking care of their children. And then that isn't even finished and they need to um, do the heaviest lifting, not the only lifting, but often the heavier or heaviest lifting for their parents. And so I wrote the piece from my heart together with Dr. Mangurian um, who is experiencing similar challenges and the purpose is not to whine and complain rather the purpose of this piece and the purpose of my advocacy is to elicit change and I think we need to start in academic medicine but academic medicine is a very small fraction of all of American medicine And we're starting with a discussion for our faculty colleagues, but I think ultimately these conversations need to include trainees, learners, as well as our staff. And what do I think we need to do? I think it starts with talking about the challenges, but then resourcing people to be more successful. And if they are more successful personally, supporting elderly, aging, and sick parents, then I think they will be more successful professionally and not have to leave our profession. And what does that mean? It means providing resources. You know, where do you take elderly parents for care? How do you uh, take oh, create an estate? How do you get power of attorney? How can we support people to take time away from their work? To spend with parents, either transporting them, providing the care, doing activities of daily living. So I think this is a starting point. I think uh, I usually try to do a version 1.0 and then build up. And so, you know, my focus right now is how to do a better job in our department and in our institution. But ultimately, we're not an island. I think these are national issues.
0: You are an absolute force of good in the world, and uh, we are so lucky to have you and to have uh, worked with you and to continue to know you as a friend. So, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on the Health and Veritas podcast. Terrific,
1: terrific to see you again. Thank you so
0: much. Hey, that was a great, great interview.
1: I'm so happy that we were, had her on, and and she and you know she's. She's a great leader, but she also shows a little bit of vulnerability, willing to, to share of herself. Uh, it's so wonderful to see leaders today who are able to um, be strong leaders, but also show that strength doesn't you know, always mean that you can't talk about personal issues. Also, you can do both, uh, sort of a Brie Brown kind of approach, right? You can be vulnerable yeah. and you can be a great, strong leader. Both things can be true. So, Howie, what's on your mind in this new year?
0: Yeah. So we've talked about the Medicaid disenrollment thing several times over the last year. And and our listeners should know the current figure is that 13.4 million people have now been disenrolled from Medicaid. And we know that's even a stale number. It's from like December 20th, but even December 20th, it was already stale. So it's much higher than that number, which is to say a very large number. And with the end of the pandemic public health emergency earlier last year, the states were required to clean up their Medicaid rolls. And this is easier said than done. Some disenrollment is absolutely necessary. Some individuals now get new jobs. They have new health insurance. Some have died. Some have aged out of their enrollment, et cetera. And in short, disenrolling itself is, is fair and consistent with the way the statute and regulations were written. But what's concerning to me uh, is that many individuals are being disenrolled due to procedural uh, reasons. They may have moved. They may not have received a notice to renew. They may not be mentally or physically able to handle the paperwork or properly engage with the process, et cetera, et cetera. Many procedural disenrollments may actually be individuals who remain eligible. And so that's a problem. 71% of all disenrollments have been for procedural reasons thus far. Utah, Idaho, Georgia, New Hampshire, Oklahoma leading the way in procedural disenrollments. Medicaid Matters, if you remember in episode 101, Catherine Baker, the provost of the University of Chicago, told us about the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment and pointed out that new Medicaid enrollees experienced lower rates of depression and better access to healthcare than matched uninsured individuals who had applied but did not get Medicaid in the state of Oregon. Does it extend life? We really don't know, but it takes anxiety and financial insecurity away or at least reduces them. We will not know for quite some time whether this particular current process has resulted in substantial changes in the uninsured in this country. We have witnessed an absolute record low in uninsurance uh, since the pandemic began. It accelerated, in fact, during the pandemic, and, and that pandemic emergency ended on May 11, 2023. As of that date, we had a record number of Medicaid, CHIP, and exchange enrollment. It's very possible that many of these newly disenrolled folks are otherwise insured. If that's the case, then the process is effective. But it is more than likely that many people are falling off the rolls. This is a problem. We should continue to not just watch it, but think about how do we address that and why are states so variable in the way they're dealing with this?
1: Well, you know, Howie, I'm really glad you approached this topic. It did concern me when I saw this, you know, the the large numbers of people who are falling off of insurance. And, you know, I'm a fan of, of people being on insurance. Of course, you know, there's just the kind of insecurity people feel when they don't have insurance. But I am distressed by the fact that when we get people on insurance, we're not seeing the kind of gains in, in health outcomes that we might expect. And it makes me wonder whether or not insurance may be necessary, but not sufficient, at least the kinds of insurance that we're currently providing. And we need to be able to be thinking more creatively about the ways in which Medicaid itself and other types of insurance can not only, you know, help people's um, mental health, but also substantively improve their life expectancy and quality of of life, their health outcomes. And, and you know, so we need to work on both sides. I mean, well, obviously it's the, the minimum is that people at least need to be shielded from financial toxicity. And, and even though you and I both know there's under insurance. So even with people with insurance, right. Still can experience this, but then, how can we make sure that if you get access to healthcare, that you're actually getting benefits from? It? That's right. And these are, I think, frontiers for us maybe to talk a lot about in 2024. But there's a lot, a lot to to improve, and no question about it.
0: No, and and again, for our listeners to know, like most of the major healthcare improvements, health improvements that have occurred over the last hundreds or so years have been. Uh, public health measures and social determinants of health, not healthcare per se. Um, but but look, the the big news stories are always around healthcare, always around interventions. Well, and that's where the
1: money's being spent for sure. That's
0: right. That's right.
1: You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholz and
0: Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, I'm going to recommend you email us at health.veritas at but you can also find us on Twitter or X. You can find us on LinkedIn. We're on threads now. Look for us, email us, text us. We'd love to hear from you. I'm at
1: H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L.
0: And I'm still at the Howie, that's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Aside from Twitter and the podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs or check out our website at som.yale.edu slash E-M-B-A.
1: Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Inez Gil and Sophia Stonk, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They're the ones who make this program as good as it is. Thank you so much. Talk
0: to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan, and to everybody out there, happy and healthy New Year. And to you and Miranda and Inez and Sophia, happy and healthy New Year to you also. Talk to you happy all soon. Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year, everyone.